Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to take them and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8, as we continue to carefully make our way through this, what I would call chapter of chapters. Welcome to every single one of you that are here, but also welcome to those that are watching online. Interesting, interesting, interesting days we find ourselves living in. Challenging times. But you know, in the midst of this, particularly in the last uh, couple weeks, we have seen the Lord answer prayers in amazing, amazing ways. Um, we have someone back with us today, and that is Jay and Linnell Gaunt. Amen. As a church, you have ministered to this dear family, and it is a delight to have them back with us. A couple weeks ago, it was a Saturday morning, we were at work day, and Jay was able to come to, to greet some of his men. There's probably, what, 18, 20 deacons that were there. And uh, Jay stopped by just to encourage, and he certainly did that. I, I had glimpses. Remember the latter part of World War II after MacArthur says, I shall return, and, and he walks onto the beach. Remember the corncob pipe and the Ray-Bans? That was Jay in that moment. His guys gathered around him. He didn't have the corncob pipe, okay? Just one of those leaders that returned, and we rejoice in that. We've seen answer to prayers with our friend Johnson, and he is home listening, he and Mary Lou at this very moment, and the Lord has just healed and is doing an amazing job. I have proof of that. If you know the Johnson at all as they minister to the junior high, they always arrive everywhere with dozens of Dunkin' Donuts. That's just who they are. I thought it was fitting and appropriate for me to visit them this week with uh, a half a dozen donuts and uh, later that very night Fran called we were FaceTiming our home group and he said Pastor Tim how many donuts were in that box when you dropped them off I was like I didn't count I mean half a dozen isn't that six well there's not anywhere near that number now so he's feeling better and we thank the Lord for that praise the Lord for Susan Valerio strengthening John Barrett Faithful prayers for many. There are still some that are under the weather, and we are praying and lifting them up and trusting. We sang just a few moments ago that God is unshakable, He is unchangeable, and He is unmovable. You know, we, we talk a lot about that, and then there's moments that we need to trust that God is truly unshakable. I commend you for your faithfulness, your fortitude of being here this morning as we listen together and we learn and we are strengthened as we focus all of our attention on the Lord and the Lord alone. May He be glorified. May He be glorified through this body today and every day. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we just approach the throne and ask, plead for help as he speaks, and Lord willing, we listen and learn this morning. Father, we come as your own children, your sons and daughters, into your throne room, ushered in upon the authority and work of our Savior, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he intercedes at this very moment on our behalf. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that understands, Lord, the very deepest and even darkest concerns. It says in your word that the Holy Spirit hears our groanings. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that this is not like fake, pretend. We don't have to muster or make anything up. That you are real. That you are powerful. That you are on the throne. That you love us unconditionally and you lavishly pour out your grace, your mercies new every day, and your love. We give praise to you for strengthening 
our dear brother Jay. I think of Linnell's emails that have gone out, the grateful gaunts. May that, may that very idea move amongst all of us. May we all be grateful for who you are. Now with your word open before us, we are gathered as you have instructed us to do the first day of the week. We've lifted up our voices in song. We praise you, we worship you, we adore you. We now plead and ask that you would guide us another step of the journey of the chapter that you're writing for us, individually but corporately as a body. Father, I personally just ask for help. Please, please, how desperate help I need. Give clarity of thought and mind and speech. And may you be pleased. May our worship be an offering to you. May we hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen what God is in total sovereign control. In his divine providence, he has ordered and ordained salvation. He has established and he has elected. It's very clear throughout his word. In the book of Romans specifically, we have learned, Lord willing, as we step back, some really key doctrines as far as who we are, what we believe. We've learned about the doctrine of justification. That is us. Even as sinners, we are being declared righteous as an act of God through the work, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We put our faith and trust in Jesus. We've learned about the doctrine of sanctification. That is what? Being set apart as holy. The ongoing progressive work. It is an act of God through the Spirit of God who is what? Doing, doing amazing things in each one of our lives. We, we see all the things that God is doing. And so inevitably we have to ask the question. We must ask this question. Like what? What do we do, right? Do we have any responsibility in, in this process? And if so, what is that responsibility? That's a great question that you've asked this morning. Thankfully, thankfully, be assured the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is one step ahead of us. He knows that question is going to be asked. What is our responsibility? Do we have any? Here it is. Listen very carefully. Our text will be found. It's a short text this morning. Just 12, 13, and 14. Romans chapter 8. The word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. To, to begin with, we need to remember some basic things. Positionally what? Positionally, we are in the Spirit. We know the Spirit of God dwells in you. We looked at that just last week, chapter 8, verse 9. Remember when you were staring at your little screens at home? We, we dealt with that truth. Verse 9, Spirit of God dwells in you. Positionally, but practically what? Look around. We have not been freed from the world. We still live in a really, really broken, corrupt world. We are still, each one of us, wrapped in flesh and blood. And we are surrounded every single day you and I wake up. We are confronted with temptation. It's hard. It's hard. Every day. It, it demands for us what constant prayer Constant instruction, feeding from the Word. Constant teaching and, and pouring into one another's lives. That's the importance of us being together. Prompting one another. Exhorting one another. Reminding one another. Don't go back there. 
Don't go back to Egypt. Remember the Israelites? And don't go back there to bondage, to sin, to captivity. We look very quickly at verse 12. It, it says that we're not debtors to the flesh, which means we, we, don't owe, we don't owe our flesh. Don't believe the lies of this world, okay? You don't owe your flesh anything. We are indebted. We have and live in obligation to the spirits. Now, with that thought in mind, the author gives us a clear warning. If you want to live according to your flesh, you want to feed this monster? First part of verse 13, 13a. Here's, here's the consequence. You will die. I, I, don't know, I don't know how to package that one pretty. Stand in front of that oncoming truck. You will die. You want to live according, you want to feed this, you will die upon the authority of the word of god i can't pretty that up i can't put a bow on that but look at the latter part latter part of verse 13 13 beholds really what i refer to you hear me oftentimes we got the big idea of the text the latter part of verse 13 holds the big idea hold on tight to this if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body Underlying these three little words, you will live. Oh, you will live. Oftentimes in my studies, I, one of the first things I, I oftentimes do is I kind of exegete a text, is just go in and look at other translations. We've had lessons on that recently. Pastor Stewart has done an excellent job talking about where we get the translations from. And it's helpful to look at it. And, and let me just give you a couple by way of the way that they're worded. The New American Standard says, if by the Spirit you are putting, putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Your King James says, if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. New International Version says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live not a translation but Eugene Peterson paraphrases this very verse in what is referred to as the message you've heard that on occasion and he says this I, I was just there's liberties to this it's not a translation it's a paraphrase but listen what Peterson says he says the best thing to do is give it a decent burial and get on with your new life God God's spirit beckons there are things to do and places to go and I, I i actually like that it's a it's a broadening okay it's not translation it's kind of you know what it just begins with what you know those things in your life just give it a good burial sins that exist habits just give it a good burial and move on it's a helpful picture because why you have all been to a funeral before correct that's correct. You're a little out of practice. This means yes, that's correct. You've all been to a funeral before. You've been to cemeteries before in graveyards. And what's interesting is that whenever you see a casket go down into the grave, you bury someone once. Generally speaking, you're not going to be digging them up anytime soon. You spend any time in a graveyard, there's a lot of burying that goes on. Some people may visit to remember a loved one, but other than that, rarely, and I tell you what, you better report it. If you see somebody with a shovel hanging around a cemetery, you don't go digging up stuff there. That is the exact picture that the author is basically giving to us. Give it a good burial and what? Get on with life. There are things to do. There's a lot of stuff for us to do. Look around you. This is speaking about a particular 
doctrine and systematic theology. It's, it's usually under a category. It's either soteriology or homardiology, but there's this, there's this subject, the progressive sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and it's officially called the mortification of sin. It means killing. That's what mortal, the word means mortal, dead. This is the doctrine under progressive sanctification we call the mortification of sin. We're to kill it. It's the renouncing of sin and thinking of that sin and putting it to death, to burying it, and don't ever dig it back up again. This, this verse is the exact verse that the great 17th century English Puritan John Owen was commenting about when he famously stated, and you've all heard this before, I've quoted on numerous occasions, what? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So we hear this doctrine from Romans chapter 8, and there's usually two different responses. We're actually going to give you three responses this morning. When we hear, okay, this is what you got to, you just got to give it a good burial and move on. Response generally number one is what? I can do it. I can do it. Kind of when you run out on the field. Okay, start of the game. You don't run out in the field like, yeah, this is probably going to go really bad really quick. You just don't do that. You begin with what? Mortification of sin. I can do it. Think about that for a moment, Orthodox Biblical Christianity, evangelical circles. John Owen, one of the, he, he falls into what I refer to as one of those hero categories where we at some level as Christians have monumentized his words into marching orders based upon Scripture. Romans chapter 1, a proud look, kill it. I can do it. A lying tongue, we kill it. I'm never, ever, ever going to tell a lie ever again. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. We grab our proverbial sword and we slay it. Whether it's the temptation to take a second look or a second piece of grandma's peach pie. We are not going to do it. If John Owen could do it, then we could do it as well. Be killing sin and so we're off to battle. We are off to what? The deepest of trenches of trench warfare. Regardless of the depth of the mud or the amounts of the blood, we will move forward to win in this battle against sin. But what happens is this. Oftentimes, we head out into that battle. And we try to what? Win in our own strength, in our own strength, I can do it. Now you, 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 you put that against the backdrop of what the Apostle Paul actually admonishes us. Philippians chapter 2. We are to be working out our own salvation. So we even take that and put it in our back pocket. I'm to work out. I'm to, I'm to win in this battle. But, but what happens is that it's that measurable, it's that measurable, tangible work i got to do this, that, that, that wrongly we kind of overemphasize something and slide into very easily some dangerous territory. You know that Jesus Christ himself teaches us in Mark chapter 8, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so he's talking about what? We have to lug this cross around. It's his life. We have to live of self-denial. I'm going to say no. However, what happens is that sincere, Cross-bearing followers of Jesus. Often what happens is what? We, we lean into an imbalanced life of what I would call self-centered asceticism. And you're like, you're working me already. Asceticism, Stephen Frady defines it as this, two components. Number one, the exercise of dis disciplined effort toward the goal of spiritual perfection. Or what? Abstention, abstaining from the satisfaction of otherwise permitted earthly creaturely desires. Remember the monks and the priests who would literally chain themselves to their desk? Okay? You chain yourself to your desk. I might as well read what's in front of me, right? And so that's what's happened. We're going to deny 
all the pleasures that are around us because I will win this battle. And what happens? It's a long list of don'ts. Life's going to be miserable. You might as well get used to it. And so take out every bit of joy, every bit of fun. A long list of don'ts and what somehow by denying yourself of anything that is enjoyable in all of life, then you will somehow win more favor in the presence of a holy God. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, don't, don't hear me. I'm not saying that we don't need more self-control, that I don't need more self-control in my own life, generally speaking. That we can, what, help ourselves and be an example and encouragement to others to live with restrictions and limits on, on some. We don't gorge ourselves. We should live within the confines and restrictions of diets and comforts and social enjoyments. These can lead to what? Trouble if we let them go. Somebody reminded me just this week, how many times have you ever heard a pastor speak about the subject of gluttony? Not very often. What happens, though, is that the enjoyments, denying ourselves anything, really leads to a flesh-centered, man-centered, works-based, here's the term I want you to hold on to, legalism. It kills. Legalism is what? Is excessive adherence to the law. It basically translates what? The more I do to prove my allegiance to Christ, the more I do to prove my allegiance to Christ, therefore, the more I am. Dangerous. Destructive doctrine. Recent evidence, we don't have to go back that far, okay? Grandma doesn't want you playing with cards because, I don't know, there's something with that. And, and we just come up with stuff. You can't go to movies. You can't listen to music with, you know, music terms like beat, beat, off beat, on beat, whatever it is, like too much beat, too loud of it. You can't do that. Couldn't dare have a glass of wine. You have to read from certain translations because everyone else is kind of... And there's just like this man-pushed list. Sinclair Ferguson says this. Um, I believe it was in The Whole Christ. wrote a book called The Whole Christ. Great book. He, he's correct as he describes how legalism, he says, quote, is embedded in the heart of man almost from the very day of his creation. There's something inside of us that says what? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, what I want to tell you this morning, make very clear, I strongly, strongly suggest, implore, that the route to authentic and successful mortification of sin is not paved on the road of legalism. Strict adherence. Mistakenly, we see the mortification of sin as an excuse to center our sanctification upon ourselves rather than on the Son of God. Rather than on the Spirit of God. After all, it's just a whole lot easier to measure. Tell me what I need to do. I can measure this. I can mark this. I can check this box. And we measure our own work as opposed to focusing what on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to ask, what must I do? Who must I become? And what happens is just thrust ourselves to the front of a pack of fleshly efforts and fleshly pursuits in order to win some kind of spiritual success, spiritual laurels. Tons of destructive behavior have flowed from this thinking. Not, not just in churches, represented what we would refer to as what evangelical Christians with, with just silly rules. They must look like this and dress like this and talk like this and do this and not do Not just that, but what? False doctrines have just flooded and promoted not just ancient Judaism. That's what some of what Paul is addressing here. But you go right down through the list. Roman Catholicism. What must I do? Hinduism. Mormonism. 
Islam. What must I do? Actually, what's interesting today is that if you look at many of the faiths, so-called faiths that are growing exponentially today, they're oftentimes based upon faiths that say, just do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. As, upon, as, as, as opposed to focusing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done for us. Many man-centered, works-based doctrines are disguised supposedly that are disguised as so-called paths to righteousness are nothing less than what? A lie from the pit of hell. Legalism. Strict adherence to the law. Therefore, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a great reminder. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I love this. But our sufficiency is from God. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The letter kills. Legalism kills. They are the most joyless miserable people because they live in a sense of fear trying to produce some kind of fame, spiritual success, righteousness. Spirit's the focus which draws us back to Romans chapter 8, our text this morning. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. But what happens with us is what? Balance, balance in our life is rarely an easy feat. In, in mind and in heart. So what begins with, I can do it. We quickly realize what? Line number two that says, that's what it means. I can't do it. Can't. Can't do it. I was working on a project one time, like third, fourth grade on Australia. Orange construction paper, a little yarn on the end of it. And, and it was it was horrendous i remember i had my face in my pillow weeping i can't do it i don't really care about koala bears i remember my mom taking me <laughs> by my feet and dragging me dragging me you can like drag so far to get off the bed and then it's going to be what there's going to be trouble i'm like whoa she's like don't don't ever say, can't do it. But see, that's, that's what happens. I'll never be able to give it a good burial. How many times have you said, you know what, I'll, I'll never really be able to, what, get this sin. The hooks that are in my flesh. The thorn. Like, I'll never be able to get it under control. I'll never be able to keep it under control. I'll never, I'll never be able to arrive at holiness, at contentment. So what happens is that under a pretense of being led by the spirits, spirits leading me, under the pretense of what? I'm going to wait for God to reveal his perfect will for me. What happens is that people just give themselves up to spiritual indolence. What we could say is what? Idleness. I'm not going to make it anyway. We, we, see, we see evidence of this when one begins to move further and further away from obedience into a twisted, what I would refer to as a distorted truth of what we actually learned about earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Where sin increase, what? Grace abounded all the more. So what happens is it's actually a distortion. We're not going to make it. Grace covers us, so what? Hey, let's just party. What happens here? Dangerous. When one attempts to reconfigure sanctification to what? Something that is fully and totally outside any responsibility that we have. Dangerous. It falls into what? There's a word here. The root of the sneak is displayed in the Greek word anti, which is against. 
Instead of, opposed to, and nomos, which is law, rule, standard. Charles Finney promoted this. What? Anti-nomos, anti-against, no law. Which means what? You do whatever you want. A neglect, a total neglect of any adherence, any obedience, any attention. It's the false doctrine, dangerous doctrine of antinomianism. The complete opposite of legalism on one side. We're not going to get it right. Can't do it. Therefore what? Anything goes. And I have heard atrocious testimonies. The, the so-called deconstructionist movement today, like I was raised with this, but I can't do it, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. I mean, they are, they are, they are racking lives and homes and Families, marriages, a lot of that belief is seeded in a sense with that slop. Uh, A.W. Tozer says it like this, when he describes this belief, the inherent dangers, the deception, he says the creed of the antinomian is easily stated. We are so by faith alone, works have no place in salvation, conduct is works, and is therefore of no importance. Which basically is not saying that works are necessary for salvation, but works are evidence of salvation. Our conduct, your conduct, your speech, your character, that your yes be yes, your no be no, that all matters. Tozer continues on what we cannot what antinomians would say, what we cannot matter as long as we both, as we believe rightly. The question of sin is settled by the cross. Conduct is outside the circle of faith and cannot come between the believer and God. Again, he's saying what? This is what they believe. Just do whatever you want. As long as I believe. Well, read the book of Jude. It says the demons believe. There's something about submission, repentance from sin, living in full obedience. Thus the importance of three little words. From Romans chapter 8, verse 13, by the Spirit. See how we're creatures of extreme? I can, I can do it. Oh, I, I can't, I can never do it. Number three, hold on to this. I can't, but the Holy Spirit can. For all who are led by the Spirit. Those are those words. Spirit of God are sons of God. How do we kind of keep it in I have, I don't, know, I don't know officially what it's diagnosed. I have a crooked eye is what I call it. And it's not like my eyes like that. It's like when something, you know when you, you nail like the picture on the wall? It's straight. Like it looks straight to me, honestly. Like it looks straight. And then we nail it, and it's like, and, and when he's like, honey. Like, so it's like, a, it's always been like that. And, and years ago, I was a teenager. I worked for a summer, only one summer for a construction company. Only one summer. Note, only one summer. With a construction company. Framing houses, and they would bring in big cranes. It was like always the most exciting part of the day. And they would have the crane to set the trusses, the roof trusses. And all the guys that like knew what to do with a hammer had to be up on the roof to nail the trusses. So my job was <laughs> stay on the ground. It's not that difficult of a job, okay? And then when the crane comes to the right place in the truss, and it, they didn't know, and they're like, when it looks straight, you just scream up, nail it. And that's my job, okay? I had to look and say two words. That's all I had to do. Crane's there, and all the guys are excited. They scramble up on the roof, and I'm looking. And I'm like, no, no, a little bit to the, little bit to the left. Like, they, I don't know. And it would look straight. And I'd say, nail it! And they, they'd come back down for lunch break, and they'd look up, and they're like, Boger, that's not even close. That's not, like, that's not even close. I'm like, yeah, I got, like, I got an eye thing, like I'm left-handed, but I'm not really left-handed. And it just never, it just never worked. Since then, I have what? There's one tool that comes out of my little tiny toolbox more than any other, and it is a level. I live with a level. Why? Because keeping the bubble in the balance. 
is what is needed. Not, not just to hang something on the wall, but keeping the bubble in the balance is significant as we purposely, what alluded to earlier, we don't balance things well and we need a clear understanding of what exactly, what is precisely is the right view of mortification. We must return to the only possible means of understanding how the mortification of sin takes place. What's interesting is it's in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, what? We must not forget comes at the tail or on the tail end of Romans chapter 6, which is a declaration of sin. Romans chapter 7, we know, is a description of the continuing battle against sin. And how does this work? So Romans chapter 6 builds the Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 builds the Romans chapter 8. How does this work? In Romans chapter 8, and that's why we're purposely slowing down the pace on this chapter, there are no less, get this, than 20 references to the Holy Spirit in one chapter. 20 references to the Holy Spirit's work, the divine agent who frees believers from sin and death. We learned about that in, in, in verse 2 and verse 3. The Holy Spirit who enables them to live righteously. That's what we're talking about in verse 4 all the way through verse 13. The Holy Spirit who assures and comforts us in our affliction. That's verses 14 and 19. The Holy Spirit who preserves and sustains us in Christ. That's, that's verse 20 through 28. The Holy Spirit who guarantees what? Our eternal victory in glory. That's verse 29 all the way through the end of verse 39. You see how the Holy Spirit, what? Bubbles up to the top so that we learn to keep the bubble in the balance. Why the Holy Spirit dwells within. Dwells within. A clear understanding of what is a proper view of mortification. Consider the words the Holy Spirit gave to Paul as he addresses the Colossae heresy. In Colossians chapter 3, mortify. There's that word. Bury it. Give it a good burial. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Why, why, why is this so difficult. Why is it so difficult to obey the words of Scripture when we have been so clearly instructed? We know, we know this. We know the reason the Holy Spirit is able to do the work of sanctification in us is because of what Christ accomplished for us through the gospel. How do we keep that proper view? Race to the cross. See your sins nailed with our Savior. How do we live and walk in the newness of life? Race to the tomb like those women. Like Peter and John having a foot race to see the miracle. This is what it looks like to walk in the newness of life. We live and we breathe the gospel of Jesus Christ, Ferguson again writes, the gospel is designed to deliver us from this lie of the serpent for it reveals that behind and manifested in the coming of Christ and his death for us is the love of a father who gives us everything he has. First, his son to die for us and then his spirit to live within us. You understand that God is, in a sense, just backing up. And he is lavishly pouring on us every single blessing that we need. And we see that. We see, we understand how refreshing and delightful is the reminder of that truth. That we, want, we are sinners. We are stuck in our sin. We do. Oftentimes, I begin my prayer have mercy upon me, O oh God, a sinner. I do one thing really, really good in this life. I sin. That's the only thing I really do well. Thus the reason that what? I've got to race to the truth of the gospel. That we are broken and separated from a holy God. But God loved us so much to send his own son. 
lavishing his love. You know the truth. You love to be loved. Just send me another card. Just write special words. I'll take a treat. I just love what we all love this. And God has what? He's shown us his love in a way that we are to hold on to and live every single day. We, we can't keep life in the balance. We're like totally messed. So he says, what I, what I want you, I want you to gather together. I want you to remember what I've done for you. We race to the truth of the gospel. This morning we are blessed. It has been painful. I'm not exaggerating. It has been painful for us not to meet together the last couple of weeks. And we were scheduled, you know that, Big Woods is kind of weird. We, we do communion on the third Sunday. I don't know where. That's all right. That We do it. And we had to postpone it. We have to be together. And this is the first thing we give our attention to. We race to one extreme. We race to the other extreme. And Jesus is pleading, is calling. Remember the scene sitting with his disciples? They're like you and I. Like they're really excited, but we don't really know what we're excited about. Want to do something, but don't really know how to do it. We know some things, but we don't know everything. And Jesus says, I want you to just focus on me. And he takes this object lesson. He said, this is going to be part. This will define who we are as followers of Jesus. Disciples like waiting, waiting on every word of Jesus. I heard recently... The disciples described themselves, we're followers. We just follow. We just follow. That's us. Waiting on Jesus' words and what does he do? It says that he takes some unleavened bread. And, and he shows it to them. And he, he tore it as an object lesson. And he said, just as this bread has been torn, he goes, my body is going to be torn apart. That's exactly what happened. They shred it. The body of Jesus. It says that they took the cup and they poured out the fruit of the vine. They poured wine into a glass. And he said, this is a picture of my blood. Just as I've poured out, my blood is going to be poured out. And, and we know the graphic, gory details of how the Romans perfected a bloody crucifixion. As Jesus, I think, was holding that glass, he poured it out, and they're waiting. And then he said, I want you to drink this. Everyone, take, take a drink and pass it and take a drink. And when you drink this, I want you to remember, that's what I am doing. Blood is the lifeline. I'm pouring my life out for you. He's lavishing love. He's lavishing love. We love to be loved. Not only do we love to be loved, let me remind you that we need to be loved because you know what? You're like adorable, but not all the time. I don't think I'm the only one that's really good at sin and selfishness and pride and anger and loss. I don't think I'm the only one here. Sorry. That's why we need, we need desperately to have the love of God shown to us to the sacrifice of his son. This morning, we're going to observe. We're going to eat the bread and drink the cup. And I want you to understand, I don't want to be rude, okay? But if you have not acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you don't hold on to the sufficiency of what God has revealed to himself and in his word, you've not placed your faith and trust, then as this is offered, I would just ask you politely, just refrain from taking that. Like if you're here and you're kind of wondering, like I think this is a good idea, but I don't know, then I'm going to ask you respectfully, please don't take this. But if you recognize that you are a sinner and that you are in need of a Savior, just like all of us, and that Jesus sacrificed his own life so that he, what, taking the pain and suffering that you and I deserved, and you desire to live in obedience, not perfection, but there is a degree of responsibility just to be obedient, to love God. That's how we show our love towards Him. 
then I would invite you, please take this, take this. And as you take it, as we eat together as a family, brothers and sisters, may it remind you, just as Jesus has sacrificed for me, I desire, I long to sacrifice for him in full and complete obedience. I'm going to ask the elders and deacons for the men to come forward and we have to, we're not going to serve it to you just in light of the circumstances. Guys will have gloves on and we want to offer the utmost of care and attention and everyone will have a mask on. But I'd like for us just to pause in a moment of quietness. And just in your heart, I ask that you thank the Lord for his love for you. And after a moment or two of just complete worship and adoration of who God is that you would come forward and 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 take the cup and the bread back to your seat and we will take that we'll observe that together as a family grateful for God's love and grace and mercy
Thank you, my brothers, for serving us. We are blessed with good and godly men as examples. We're going to begin with the bread. Um, it says that after the Lord gave thanks. And so we're going to pause, we're going to bow our heads, and we're going to pray and give thanks for what God has done for us through the work of Jesus. Lord, again, we're just most humbled for this moment you've given to us. And I pray that as we receive this bread as a reminder of the, your body that was broken, as we drink this cup as a picture and symbol of your blood that was poured out, that we would do this with great care and reverence and significance. And Lord, that this would be a reminder for us that our obedience matters, that our submission, living in constant repentance matters. Thank you, Lord, that you dwell within us through the power and ministry of your spirit that gives us the ability and the means to give sin a good burial, not go digging it up again. And we're able to do that because of what Jesus did for us. Thank you. Thank you for this bread. Thank you for this cup. Bless us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, eat this, in remembrance of me. It says, in the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, drink this, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the wonderful conclusion for as often as eat this bread, every time we eat this bread, Every time we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Matt's going to come and close us. I, I do want to remind you um, not to race out after that last hymn. If you are a member of Big Woods Bible Church, especially um, if you are a regular attender, if you consider Big Woods Bible Church your home, we do have some... Um, matters that we want to discuss. We'll have opportunities for questions and answers. Those of you that are joining us online, you'll be given instructions to click, and you can also submit questions as well. So it is important that we meet for a few moments afterwards. Lord bless.